Father in heaven, we are in need of, of help and we're in need of hope this morning. And so we turn to you. We turn to the truth of your word. We ask for your help. Or we ask that you would come and meet with us and that you would minister to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray you'd humble us as we hear your word, that we would receive your word, that we wouldn't leave here merely being those who hear your word, but by your grace that we'd be those who seek to do your word, who seek to honor you and obey you and grow as worshipers of you. And for any that are here this morning that don't know you, God, I pray you'd save them. I pray you'd lead them to put their faith in Jesus while there's still time. And Lord, we pray that you would minister to us this morning. I thank you for the joy that it is to preach your word, the privilege and honor it is to preach your word, Lord. I pray that you'd help me to preach faithfully and clearly and joyfully that your son Jesus would be exalted. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this was a difficult week and an unusual week in many respects for me this way, this week as I prepared to preach this message, which we've set out ahead of time. We just preached through books of the Bible, so this is the week we're on 1 Thessalonians 4. Actually, I, I planned initially to preach it last week, if you remember, in chapter 4. I just spent some time in 1 through 8 and split off 9 through 12. So as the Lord had it, this fell this week. It's a passage that seeks to comfort and encourage a church, the Thessalonians, that they were grieving the loss of loved ones in their church. And this passage is meant to bring them comfort. And it brought me comfort this week. In a week where there was a lot of hard news and a lot of death. I came in last Sunday and shared with you just mourning the news of my 53-year-old cousin who died in his sleep of a heart attack. And we had his funeral this past Wednesday. By God's grace, he put his faith in Christ 10 years ago. And while that was a time of sorrow this past Wednesday, it was a time I also left rejoicing. I came in last Sunday with that type of morning, and we came home Sunday afternoon to hear hard news again that my 16-year-old son, one of his high school teammates' moms, died Sunday morning while we were here in church after a 21-month battle with a brain tumor. That would be the third mom on his team in the past 18 months to die. And we did it again, dressed him up and took him to a funeral for one of his teammates' moms. Church member's mother passed away last Sunday afternoon, went to her funeral this past Friday, came in Monday morning as if those reminders weren't enough of a reminder about how fragile life is. I came in to work on this sermon. I went outside to take a break. I looked across the street. There was an ambulance and two fire trucks and emergency personnel administering CPR to someone laying on the ground. And I stood there. I'd gone outside to get some sunshine and take a break. I've been studying this passage. I stood there and just prayed for whoever it was whose life lay in the balance there that God would spare their life. And I came back inside to get to work on the sermon again. And behold, here came the news of the Covenant School in Nashville. Horrific, disturbing news. That's a lot of hard news. And one day and a, a week all of that combined this week deeply affected me. I'm sure you all were deeply affected in many different ways. And in that grief and sorrow, we hurt. And I'm hurting this morning. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we can be hurting and still hoping 
And that's what this passage is about. Paul wanted to comfort Christians to know we will hurt this side of glory. Sin will have an impact. We will know sorrow and grief, but we're not without hope. And so we live this life that's mixed with joy in Christ and sorrow with all that's wrong in the world. Hope in the one who's come to make things right, growing in hope, looking forward to his return one day, at the same time, sorrow that we experience. And while I was affected by grief and sorrow this week, you know what else affected me? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. God's word is so timely. I'm so thankful for his word. In the midst of tears, in the midst of grief, we can know hope as we turn to the truth in his word. And it's my prayer for us as a church, this time God's given us in his word, that we would be instructed and encouraged and filled with hope as we look to Jesus and to his return. Go ahead and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that's where we're going to be this morning in God's timing. This is the passage he has for us this morning. If you want to take a copy of the Bible and open it up right there, there's a Bible on the pew rack in front of you. You can turn to page 987, page 987, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18. Uh, You can turn to that passage. That's the best way to stay engaged during this sermon. Let me read for us all of this passage as we begin our time together starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, the word of the Lord. Well, as we make our way through this passage this morning, I want to give you the main idea of this sermon. Here's the main idea. Find hope in the midst of grief through Christ's resurrection. Find hope in the midst of grief through Christ's resurrection. Now, the Thessalonian church had been dealing with death. Inevitably here, they were grieving the loss of of loved ones. They were a bit unsettled by what was going on. And in this portion of the letter written by the Apostle Paul, he addressed them concerning their hope. That in the midst of their, their grief, he wanted them to grow in their hope in Jesus. And so he wrote to address them on the return of Jesus and on the resurrection of the dead that will come on that last day. In the midst of hard news, they needed to hear the good news concerning Jesus and how the good news about what has already happened, that Jesus has risen from the dead, 
points to the good news that's yet to come. He's reigning this morning, and what's yet to come? Jesus will return to earth. He wanted to encourage them with this good news. You see, the Christian hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus. Next Sunday, we'll celebrate Easter Sunday. Uh, We'll think specifically about the resurrection of Jesus, but we do that every Sunday. There's one day on the New Testament Christian calendar, one holy day, that's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. We meet on Sunday morning because that's the morning that Jesus got up from the dead. And we look back and we rejoice in that good news and we are filled with hope to move forward in the present. In the midst of a world where we know joy and we know pain. And we look back to move forward in hope that Jesus indeed one day, hopefully soon, will return to earth. You see, the return of Christ is is one of the greatest promises of the Christian faith. And we've mentioned in 1 Thessalonians that the end of every chapter in the book of 1 Thessalonians, it ends with a mention of the return of Jesus. It's one of the reasons I picked this book for us to go through this, that we would have our eyes focused on the return of Jesus. And so I ask you, Christian, is Christ's return a part of your gospel? The gospel you meditate on, the gospel that you find hope and joy and peace in, is the return of Jesus a part of that gospel? Is it a part of your prayer life? Is it a part of what you labor in light of? Is it a part of the motivation and ambition for you in holiness and in Christian growth and in service and in worship to our Lord and Savior? You see, Paul taught this young church repeatedly about the return of the Lord. In this section, he spends most of the time teaching on these details about the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. He rehearses the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, he came down from heaven, truly God and truly man. He came to die. He came to lay his life down willingly as a payment for sin, to step in as a substitute in our place and to take the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin against a holy God. He indeed died on that cross. He was buried dead in a tomb. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. This morning, we worship a living, reigning Savior. Because he's risen, because he's reigning, he is one day returning. Brother and sister in the Lord, do not lose sight of this. And when hard news comes, We can be those who know grief and sorrow, and at the same time, we can be those who grow in hope. I wonder, where is hope in need of repair in your life, Christian? Our hope is not found in this present world. Our hope is found in a person, Jesus, and He has gone to prepare a place for us, for those who've put their faith in Him. I wonder, where is hope in need of repair in your life, Christian, as we make our way through this passage this morning, let's consider this hope we have in Jesus. Three parts to our outline this morning. The first part in verses 13 and 14, the foundation of our hope. Verses 13 and 14, the foundation of our hope. So far, what we've seen in chapter 4, it's been a list of exhortations, it's been a list of instructions, and most of it was not new material for this young Thessalonian 
church. Paul was mainly reminding them of what they already knew, what he'd already taught them. But here in verses 13 through 18, this is the only part of the letter where we find something that this young church was unclear on and needed instruction in. You read there in verse 13 that Paul does not want them to be uninformed. There was something they were confused about pertaining to the return of Christ to earth and the resurrection of the dead. In particular, they were uninformed about those who are asleep. Now, sleep is a metaphor for death. That metaphor was familiar in the New Testament, but it was also familiar culturally in that time. Asleep, it just describes the physical appearance of the dead. When someone dies physically, it can look like they are asleep. So we see at the end of verse 16, Paul refers to those same people as the dead in Christ. That's who those who are asleep are. They're the dead in Christ. And again, apparently some members of this church had died. We don't know how many. We don't know how. It could have been connected to persecution in the church. We really don't know. But we do see they were grieving the loss of loved ones. Paul does not want them to grieve as those who have no hope. They were confused. They were lacking hope. They needed to be instructed. So it's important to consider the goal of this information that Paul wants them to know. The goal and the purpose of this instruction we see down in verse 18, encouragement. That's the goal. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So his concern here is not to lay out all of the details about the resurrection of the dead. It's not to lay out all of the details about the return of Christ. It's not to make you crystal clear about the millennium, as if you could be anyways. Maybe you think you are, but as if you could be. In these verses, his aim really is just get to comfort and encouragement. That's his aim. It's a pastoral aim. It's a shepherding aim that is, is here. He doesn't want them to be uninformed. His shepherding concern, we see at the end of verse 13, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He doesn't want them to be uninformed. He wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be filled with hope. So you may wonder, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that Christians should not grieve death? Well, I think this service has already answered that question for you, right? We've spent time grieving. But as we, if we need to think more, of course, the answer to this is no. He's not saying that. Rather, he's saying we have a different manner of grieving as Christians than the world around us does. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes a difference in how you grieve. And the hope that we find in Jesus, it meets us in our grief. It comforts us in our grief. Indeed, it sustains us in our grief. It's it's right for Christians to grieve. It's sad to say goodbye to a loved one. It's sad to be separated from our loved ones by death. And therefore, it's right to grieve. In John chapter 11, verse 35, we read that Jesus When he was on the way to the grave of Lazarus, what did he do? It's one of the shortest scripture memory verses you can have in the scriptures. Two words, Jesus wept. The Son of God, tears of grief flowed from his eyes over the death of a friend. And so that tells us it's right to grieve, friends. Tears of sorrow are not a bad thing. In fact, as Christians, we can understand just how bad things are in the world, where evil comes from, and we understand the solution to evil found only in Jesus Christ. 
Christ and the reconciliation He provides to our Father in heaven, to anyone who would trust in Him. But it's important to understand that as Christians, we do not grieve hopelessly. Our grief is mingled with hope that's found in Jesus. Our hope is not found in trying to minimize our pain and act like things aren't that big a deal. Our hope is not found in merely just trying to have optimistic thoughts. Rather, hope is a powerful force that's rooted in truth about Jesus. So think of hope as confident expectation. That's what hope is. It's a powerful force of of confident expectation found in the promises of Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian hope is based on facts, historical facts concerning who Jesus is and what he, he did. So our hope isn't just like, oh, we're going to choose to think in a real positive manner about the future. And if you just think more positively, well, then you'll have less stress and anxiety in your life. That, that's not Christianity. You see, Christian hope is found in a person in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. He reminds them of the foundation of their hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Jesus died on the cross. Fact. He rose again on the third day. That's not just a fun story. That's a fact. Paul himself and I witnessed to that. If you do not believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. You can't possibly be a Christian. You can't put your faith in Jesus if you don't believe in who He is, the Son of God, and what He's done, and dying on the cross, and rising from the dead. But for those who believe in Jesus, who have put our faith in Jesus, we have hope. Now follow Paul's logic here in verse 14. Jesus died, He rose again, therefore Christians who die will rise again as well. The foundation of our hope, Jesus rose, and so will Christians. Verse 14 continues, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You see, Christians have a confident expectation that when Jesus returns to earth, just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he too will raise up those Christians who have fallen asleep. Sleep is temporary. You're here this morning because you went to sleep last night. I hope you did. I hope you didn't show up with no sleep. I know some of you got little ones, and it feels like you're not sleeping much these days, right? But however long you get to sleep, it's temporary. You go to sleep, and then you wake back up, and it's the same for the dead. Your body grows in the ground. That sleep is temporary, though. The physical bodies of believers who have died will be raised when Jesus returns. Now, just like there was some confusion amongst the Thessalonians, I think there's confusion often in our churches today about what happens when you die, about what happens at the return of Christ, and some confusion about the resurrection of the dead. Again, that metaphor has fallen asleep. It's a picture here of a Christian dying, their body being laid to rest in a grave. And I've performed a number of funerals, graveside services just down the road at the cemetery that many of you passed this morning. And what I'm sure to say to the families out there every time at the graveside, that grave is a temporary resting place for that physical body. It's a temporary location for that dead body. Just as the tomb was not the final resting place for Jesus, the tomb will not be the final resting place for his people. 
In the future, when Jesus returns to earth, God will raise those physical bodies up from the grave. You see, we understand in the Bible we're not merely physical beings. We have a soul. And many of us are clear that our souls will live forever, right? When our physical body dies, the soul of a Christian immediately goes up to be with the Lord. So don't hear us sleep and think that a soul is sleeping. A soul never sleeps. A soul immediately goes to either be with the Lord in heaven or a soul immediately goes to hell if you've not trusted in Christ and you die in your sins. Remember what Jesus told the thief on the cross in Luke 23, verse 43, when that thief confessed faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Luke 23, verse 43, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Christians who die, their physical bodies go in the ground, but their souls immediately go to be with the Lord. Paul speaks of this in even more detail in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Again, in Philippians 1, verse 23, Paul makes it clear that the souls of dead Christians are immediately with the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. For those who've repented of their sin against God and put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, when you die, your body goes in the ground, your soul will immediately be with Jesus in heaven. From the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the moment of conversion, the Spirit of Christ, He's with you. He's with you always. From the moment of your conversion and forevermore. And not even death will change that. Again, Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 says, I am sure that neither death nor life, continuing on in 39, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is because of this hope we have in Jesus, this confident expectation found in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Christians don't have to grieve in the same manner as the rest of the world. We have a different experience of grief because of Jesus and our hope found in Him. I prayed earlier for Chad Scruggs, the pastor of the Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville. I looked at my wife this morning. I said, I cannot imagine what their worship service is going to be like this morning. I know there will be hope there, but I can't imagine how hard it must be for them to gather this morning. Chad Scruggs, the senior pastor of that church, he lost his nine-year-old daughter, Hallie, nine years old. Her life taken by the wicked violence of that day. It's hard to imagine the pain that family must feel, the level of grief and, and sorrow. Yet the words that he's issued to the press, which are just small, demonstrate a clinging to Christ and hope in him. What he told ABC News in a statement, we are heartbroken. That's just three words. I imagine the depths of that. We are heartbroken. Through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. Tears, confidence that she's with Jesus and looking to the resurrection of the dead. Hope in Jesus does not lead us to ignore our grief. 
doesn't keep us from having tears, doesn't cause us to deny our grief. Rather, our hope in Jesus meets us in our grief, sustains us in our grief, carries us in our grief. Brothers and sisters, there is some pain and grief and sorrow that we may carry and deal with the rest of our lives. I don't think you ever get over that kind of pain. I don't think the pain will ever be gone from having your nine-year-old daughter murdered. Rather, in that pain, Christ will sustain them to the end. That's his confidence in what he's saying. What's different for Christians is that we have hope that death does not have the final word. Evil in this world is not the end. Death does not have the final word. And we look back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we find hope in His victory over death. That just as He scored victory over death, He gives that resurrection victory to anyone who would turn and trust in Him. So the Apostle Paul first wanted to instruct them in the foundation of their hope. In verses 15 through 17, he now turns to the fullness of our hope. The fullness of our hope. The second part of our outline, verses 15 through 17, the fullness of our hope. The souls of Christians who've died are with Jesus right now, this morning. However, your soul, going to be with the Lord in heaven, is not the end. There is something greater that is yet to come after heaven. Jesus himself declared this. That's what Paul says in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is recalling what Jesus himself told him. Much of what Paul says here you can find in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. And as an apostle, he was authorized by the Lord Jesus himself to teach what he directly received from Jesus. Now, what the Thessalonians were confused about was not concerned with what happened to the souls of those Christians who had died. They they were sure their souls were with Jesus. They weren't confused about the return of Christ. They knew that Jesus was returning. That was their hope and their expectation. The confusion seems to be centered around what will happen with these dead Christians when Jesus returns. In other words, are they going to miss out on the return of Jesus? Are they going to miss out on the final resurrection of the dead? So likely they were thinking that only those believers alive would experience the return of Jesus. And that was giving them some trouble. Like, are they going to miss out on the resurrection of the dead? Will we, if we die, will we miss out on that when Jesus returns? And Paul wants them to be clear. At the Lord's second coming, those Christians who have already died will have their physical bodies resurrected. In fact, they will be the first to be raised. It's important to know this resurrection does not happen when we die. It happens when Christ returns. That's the fullness of our hope. When Christ returns, resurrection will happen. Now, in verse 16, we get a basic order of events here of the return of Christ. I mentioned there's some events listed here, uh, but this is about the extent of it, verse 16. Most of this is just a pastoral shepherding aim. The first event of verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. The resurrected Jesus was here on earth for a period of 40 days. 
We read in Acts chapter 1 that just as Jesus ascended up to heaven after those 40 days, one day Jesus will descend from heaven and come back down to earth. That's the first event. Verse 16 continues mentioning a second event. In this second event, there are three sounds mentioned there. These three sounds together help us know that the return of Jesus is going to be a loud and noisy moment. Far from being a secret moment that some are somehow going to miss, it will be loud, it will be clear, it will be unmistakable. First, there will be a cry of command coming from God himself, a command that goes out that must be obeyed. That cry of command will be accompanied by a second noise, the voice of an archangel, likely the archangel Michael, leading the angels to accompany the Lord at his return. And then the third sound, the sound of the trumpet of God. Again, in Matthew 24, Jesus mentions this trumpet. Think of this trumpet as a call of victory, going out to the ends of the earth, the final victory of Jesus as he returns to earth, calling all of his people forward. All of this noise announces the ultimate and final victory of Jesus. Those dear loved ones who've died in Christ, not only will they not miss out on this glorious occasion when Jesus returns, Paul wants to know they'll actually be the first to be raised. They're ahead of you. And I thought about that with my cousin the other day. He beat me there. He beat me there. I hope Christ returns. I, I want to be one that Paul's talking about here. I want to be alive when Christ returns. And if that's the case, he beat me there. And he'll beat me to a resurrection body. The last part of verse 16 makes it plain. And the dead in Christ will rise first. What about those who are alive when Jesus returns? Well, that's what's addressed in verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Interesting enough, Paul uses we there to put himself in that group, meaning he was expecting the return of, of Jesus, meaning it can happen at any time. Some people will tell you, well, it can't happen right now. We've got to go fulfill the Great Commission. We'll talk about that more next week or really or two weeks on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, but Paul was clear it could happen in his day, and you should be clear it could happen today. And we hope that it does happen today. But what we see here is after the righteous dead have been raised and have received their immortal glorified bodies, then those Christians that are still alive will ascend to join them and meet the Lord in the air. Our mortal bodies, too, will be changed and glorified, meaning we will receive a body that will be immortal and last forever. Just as Christ was raised from the dead with a physical body, so we too will have new physical bodies that will last forever in eternity. For those alive when Christ returns will be made whole. We will be fully united to Jesus Christ and we get reunited to those who have died in Christ and have gone before us to glory. But let's keep our eyes on what's so great about the return of Jesus. The final goal, there at the end of verse 17, so we will always be with the Lord. The Christian hope isn't merely that we'll see our loved ones again. That's going to be wonderful. That's going to be awesome. But that's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope isn't merely that pain will be done away with. That will be awesome. 
No more sin or sorrow or grief. The Christian hope, though, is found in this, that when we die, we will be with the Lord Jesus forever. We'll be with Him forever. I've heard the question posed, if you could have heaven and everything good here on earth, your, your loved ones who've died, your family and your friends, if you could have peaceful moments, if heaven contained those picturesque views you've enjoyed here on earth of mountains and oceans and sunsets and there's no crying and no tears, nothing bad, everything good. If you could have that, but Jesus wasn't there, would you still want heaven? And the point is this. What's so great about heaven? We get the Lord. What's so great about what Jesus has accomplished for us? What's so great about forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation and peace with God? What's so great about salvation is that we are saved to be with the Lord forever. You see, this return of the Lord and gathering up of His people, it ushers in the end of the age, the end of this present world for everyone. Now, Paul is comforting Christians here. So he's focusing on the resurrection of the Christian dead. Again, just a few verses here. He's just writing a letter, teaching them, instructing them. He's focusing on the Christian dead here in this passage. But you need to be clear, when Jesus returns, this will be an event for more than just dead Christians and living Christians. In Acts chapter 24, verse 15, we read, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the righteous in Christ and the unrighteous who are outside of Christ and still in their sins, all will face the judgment seat of Christ. And for those who haven't found forgiveness in Christ, who haven't trusted Him, that judgment seat will be one of condemnation for your sins. You will face the wrath of God. The return of Jesus, it will be a wonderful day for those who have repented of their sins by the grace of God and put their faith in Jesus. We will be ushered into eternal glory, but it is proper to give a warning. And if you're here today and you've not put your faith in Jesus, I say this to you and we say this to you because we love you. We don't want you to die and be mistaken about what lies ahead. If you've not trusted in Jesus, it will be a terrible day. You will be in your sins, and you will face eternal punishment in hell. Conscious, eternal punishment. Are you ready for that day? I told our pastors this week that at funerals before, I've told people, hey, the funeral workers, they prepare the dead for the funeral. But I'm a pastor. I don't do that. I prepare you for that day. I prepare you for that day that you die. That's what our pastors are committed to, to prepare you for that day that is surely. Are you ready? The way to be ready is not, well, I just need to live a better life in 2023. I need to clean my act up and try to do things better. No, the only way to be ready is to repent of your sins, to seek forgiveness of your sins before a holy God. And the only way to find forgiveness before a holy God is to trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only way to be saved. He's the only way your sins can be paid for. 
He's the only one worth living for. He is worthy of all of your life. And what it means to become a Christian is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can do that today. You can do that right now. I hope you talk to one of our members around you. I'll be at this door afterwards. Our pastors will be at all the doors. We'd love to talk to you more today after the service about what it would look like to trust in Jesus and to get right with God today. And for the rest of us Christians, are you ready for that day? Later on, we'll see in the book of First Thessalonians that the Apostle Paul ties in a pursuit of holiness to the return of the Lord. So it's actually a sanctifying meditation and ambition to look forward to the return of Christ and to live life backwards. Focus on that day that will surely come. We just confessed this morning our faith using the words of the Nicene Creed. What we said is we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Are you looking, Christian? How can you look more? Look to that day and live your life backwards. Live today in light of that day. You've heard me say this before. How can you live today in light of what is going to matter 10,000 years from now? Three things last forever. God, His Word, the souls of people. Probably should add to that, right, with this morning. And your physical bodies will be resurrected. You won't be a disembodied soul forever. When Christ returns, that will be the fullness of the hope we've longed for. In verse 18, we find a third part, the final part, the fellowship in our hope. The fellowship in our hope. Six verses total in this passage, four of them going into some level of detail about the return of Jesus and the final resurrection. Again, because Paul's aim is to shepherd here. The the goal of all of this is encouragement. His final instruction there in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He wants that church to build each other up through the truth about Jesus. Now, now part of your job description as a member of this local church is to encourage one another. I think it's probably one of your most important ministries in this local church is to build other Christians in this church up and point them to hope in Jesus. Jesus will come again and let us encourage one another to not lose sight of this. I'm thankful for everyone who had a part in this service this morning because that's the aim of this service, to point you to not lose sight of Jesus and his return. Paul wanted them to encourage one another, and that's how I want to close our time out today. I want to encourage you. See, the main takeaway from these words in this passage, it should get us excited about what is yet to come. Why don't we get more excited about going to be with the Lord? Why do we often think, well, Jesus, I want you to return, but let these things happen first. Let me graduate college. I return after I get married. Or return after the kids are gone. Maybe return when I'm like old and I'm in pain and I'm lying in bed and unable to do. If we're honest, we all think like that. Why is that? Well, it's because we're, we're so excited about things here on earth that sometimes that gets in the way of our excitement about what is yet to come. And here's what I want to do this morning. I, I, I want to say this. It's a good thing to be excited about things here on earth. The book of Ecclesiastes taught us, if you were here, raise your hand if you were here during that sermon series. 
right? Thank you. That, that book taught us, enjoy God's daily gifts. You don't have to feel guilty about enjoying God's daily gifts. It taught us not to build our life upon them, not to presume upon His gifts in the future, but whatever God's giving you, enjoy it. You honor Him by enjoying it. So, so my direction to you is like, stop enjoying your life. Go be miserable. That's not a godly life. It's a good thing to enjoy God's daily gifts to you, whatever they are. But be sure to keep this perspective. Every joy and pleasure here on earth is but a small taste of what is yet to come. Every joy and pleasure here on earth is but a small taste of what is yet to come. I love my wife. I love being married to her. I love my kids. I can't tell you how much I love them. I love the moments I get with them. I love watching my kids play sports. I love our family vacations. I love so much that the Lord gives us here in life. I love Sunday mornings here with my church family. I love fall in the Carolinas. I don't love spring so much with the pollen, but I love fall in the Carolinas. I love North Carolina barbecue. I love a good meal. Many of you know that if you know me. I love to go out and try a good meal. I enjoy a nice cup of coffee. I enjoy trips to the beach and trips to the mountains. I enjoy beautiful sunsets. There are things marked on my calendar that I'm looking forward to, that I'm excited about, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. God is so kind to afford us moments of joy and pleasure here on earth and enjoy Him in every one of those moments. But remember, Christian, these are just a small taste of the full and endless joy that is yet to come. Could you get more excited about heaven as you think about that? But we can be honest about joy too as Christians. Our joy, this side of heaven, it ebbs and flows. It goes up and down. There are good days and there are hard days. There are good weeks and hard weeks. There are good months or even good years and then hard years or hard seasons and hard moments. We know and we can be realistic as Christians that joy is mixed in with pain and with grief this side of glory. And as I mentioned earlier, I experienced that this week. It's important for us to remember this. Every grief that we know reminds us of that day when grief will be no more. For those who grieve and are mourning the loss of loved ones here this morning, that's ah, hard. It's difficult. May that grief and pain cause us to long more for that day when death will be no more. When Christ returns, death will have its own funeral. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that the last enemy that will be abolished is death itself. Death is coming to an end. For now we grieve being separated from our loved ones. For those who are with Christ right now, we have the hope we will see them again one day in glory. This side of heaven we know spiritual trials. E even though we've been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin over us, we are so regularly pestered with temptation. We are so regularly tempted to not love God, to not enjoy Him. Far too often we disobey God. Far too often we don't trust Him. Far too often we sin against our God and King. As we confess our sins to God and experience times 
of refreshing that come from the Lord. May we look to that day that we are with the Lord and we are finally away from the presence of sin. It will be done. Temptation gone. Enemy Satan defeated. Sin no longer pestering us. When Christ returns, what a day that will be. When the presence of sin will finally be done away with. When we're overwhelmed by evil in this world, and all you have to do is just look at headlines. If you look at national news, if you look at our local news, it's terrible to see the headlines. It's almost depressing sometimes to go and read the terrible things that are happening in our city and in our country around us. Violence and and murder and death and crime. In those moments of sadness, in those moments of feeling overwhelmed by evil, may we remember that Christ has already conquered evil. He died on the cross and rose from the dead in victory over sin and victory over Satan and death. And when he comes, he will finally return to execute justice here on earth and to finally do away with sin forever. For those going through physical trials, it's important to know we have a new body that is coming. One that will last longer than 70 or 80 or 90 years, one that will last forever. In this life, our bodies will give us trouble. One day, we will have bodies, though, that will not break down in pain, bodies that will not suffer any disease, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more anxiety, no more hard news from doctors. One day, these trials will give way to glory when we draw our final breath. And then we will be with the Lord forevermore. Let us not lose sight of the return of Jesus. May every joy point us to the endless joy that's yet to come. May every taste of grief and sorrow point us to the day that grief will be no more. Christian, I ask you again what I asked you at the beginning. Where is your hope in need of repair? We come on Sundays to be renewed in our hope, to be reminded of what really matters in life and what will really matter 10,000 years from now. And we come to be reminded who we belong to. We belong to Jesus. We've been bought and paid for with a price with the price of His very blood shed for us, His body given for us. We belong to Him. He owns us. That's why we call Him Lord, and He does not leave us to ourself. The promise we have is that He is with us always, even to the end of the age. At the end of the age, He will be with us forevermore. We are not home yet, but we're almost there. Every joy... Every trial brings us one day closer to that day that we truly are home and we will forever be with the Lord if you've put your trust in Him. Christ will come again. We're almost there. This life is just a vapor. We're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes. We're almost home. We're almost home, so press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord, we're almost home. We're going to close singing that song.
We're going to close being filled with hope in Jesus. But I want to give you a moment now to bow and pray. I'm going to give you a moment like we've done for the last couple of weeks to pray silently. It could be a good moment for you to pray and reflect on the hope you found in Jesus. It could be a good moment to pray and ask the Lord to restore your hope in Jesus. I'll close this out in prayer, and then we'll sing Almost Home. Please bow with me.